You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Tonight's scripture reading is actually a little different than what's in your bulletin. We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. I'll give you a second to turn to that. I'll be reading from the ESV version. And for those who are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who had happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, good evening, my name is Ben Milner, one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you, along with Austin, glad you're here. Um, we're looking at the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, um, otherwise known as the Acts of the uh, Ascended Lord Jesus, because really, it's just like a second gospel. Um, the book of Luke actually concludes with the book of Acts. They're really one book. Uh, in the original, they're just one book. And so if you think about the book of Luke as the beginning of the life and ministry of Jesus, the book of Acts is nothing more than the continuation of the life and ministry of Jesus. But now he's actually ascended into heaven. So whereas he was on earth in the book of Luke, now he is invisible. <clears throat> he's in the invisible realm. He's still a physical being, but we can't see him. He's entered another dimension. Um, and that's what the ascension means, is that he's reigning over the earth from this other dimension, which is not like in outer space. Uh, it's like right here, right in front of us, uh, but we can't see it. Just like we can't see infrared or ultraviolet. You know, it's, it's a different kind of wavelength. But he's here, he's ruling the earth, and Acts, the book of Acts, is the story of uh, his continuing reign as he moves out from Jerusalem across the entire earth, First, uh, he takes Jerusalem, then Judea, he spreads out, and then Samaria, outside of Judea, and then all the way to the ends of the earth, he's spreading out his reign. And we saw last week that he, uh, he invaded Europe in the uh, city of Philippi in Greece. So that was his first entree into Europe. And th- then, um, then in chapter uh, 17, he comes into um, Thessalonica, which is a, a larger city. It's actually still there in Greece today. Um, and in the, in the city of Thessalonica, the people in that city complain about the Christians being there. And they say, uh, these people uh, are turning the world upside down, saying that there's another king. And I love that image of what the book of Acts is about. It's about uh, turning the world upside down, which is really flipping it right side up. Because the world is so screwed up that we are upside down. Um, but... When Jesus sets things right, uh, or puts them right side up, he has to flip them back over. So it's like if you've ever been walking down uh, your street and your neighbor's yard cart is like turned over. If you've ever turned it back and set it right, that's what he's doing. He's going around and he's turning everything right. He's setting all things right. That's what Jesus is doing. And um, the main thing that's wrong with the earth, the main thing that's upside down, is that nobody talks about God. Or feels the presence of God very much. Uh, or even knows God, or very, even perceives God very much. We live in a world uh, that is very much um, godless. It is, uh, you, you could say God forsaken, but we're the ones who forsook him. Um, it's a world where there's almost no acknowledgement of the one who made the world, of the one who created the world, who is everywhere, who is uh, omnipresent, ubiquitous, uh, made everything, And so that's the first thing I want to look at is this God-forsaken world that these Athenian philosophers live in. Talk about that first. And then what Paul says to the Athenian philosophers is that um, 
he is going to set, Jesus is going to set the world right. He's going to set things right. He's going to inject the presence of his father, God Almighty, into the world. That's what Paul's doing. That's what Jesus is doing. He is filling the world, even today in this sanctuary right here, he is uh, injecting himself, uh, the presence of God, into this world. So the God-forsaken world and the God-saturated world. And that's what we're about as believers. We are saturating the world with the God who is not acknowledged, who is not known, not felt. So, uh, verse 16. uh, Paul is waiting for his friends in Athens. It's kind of a detour. Uh, He's waiting in Athens for his friends. And uh, while he's there, uh, his spirit is provoked. In other words, he's extremely distressed and sad and grieved by what he's looking at around him. Uh, Because he sees that the, the city is full of idols. And if you've ever been to Athens, you can look up at the Acropolis and you see um, all of these statues, uh, all these temples to the idols of the Greek gods. Uh, Athens, you might know uh, if, you're, if you're familiar with philosophy, it was once kind of the Oxford of the ancient world. It was the place of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. It was the center of Greek learning. But that was several hundred years before Paul got there. When Paul got there, it had become kind of tawdry, like kind of a little bit run down. It was now not so much the intellectual center of the world. It was like the spiritual. It was like the Asheville, Asheville, North Carolina. It was like the Asheville of the world. It was a place with 30,000 gods. So imagine like coexist with 30,000 letters. It was um, a place where uh, one of their uh, philosophers, uh, Petronius, said it is easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Um, that's, that's how much uh, worship was going on. How many people, um, like hucksters, were selling their spiritual wares in uh, Athens. Uh, Palostris, another Greek philosopher, said they have a statue to an unknown god there, just in case. In case they forgot one. In case there's 30,001 gods, they have another uh, statue to an unknown god, just to cover all their bases. And indeed, it says in verse 23, where Paul begins his speech to the Athenians, he says, uh, As I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. And I'm sure he's smiling as he says that. He's kind of making fun of them. But the point is that there's all of the spirituality, and there's absolutely no personal connection to God. Uh, The fact that there is spirituality or religion... Uh, has nothing to do with actual the presence of the real creator God. And so, verse 17, uh, Paul is so provoked and grieved that he has to get in there and he has to begin to reason with them. And so far in the book of Acts, all we've seen him doing is talking to people who are Jewish for the most part. He's been talking to synagogues. Now he's talking to people who have no knowledge whatsoever of Scripture. No knowledge at all. So he's got to talk to them about Jesus with, with no, no reference to Scripture at all. And just ask yourself, if you're a Christian, could you do that? If you were talking to somebody and you can't reference the Bible at all, what would you tell them? How would you begin to talk about Jesus? And this is what Paul is doing. He's in the Agora. It says in verse 17, he reasoned every day in the Agora, that's the marketplace, uh, with anyone who would engage with him. So he's looking for anybody to talk to. And uh, one of the things I love about London is at the corner of Hyde Park, there's a place called Speaker's Corner. And at Speaker's Corner, there are Muslims and Christians and atheists and anarchists and communists 
And they're all there just standing on soapboxes, uh, talking to anyone who would come to them and debating. A lot of times they'll start debating with each other. It's really uh, spiritually, intellectually stimulating. Um, that's what Paul's doing here. Uh, he's in the Agora just uh, debating people. And in verse 18, it says that the people he's talking to are Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. They're the ones conversing with him. And those were the two big um, philosophical movements of the day. And they're, they're completely the opposite of each other. So uh, the Stoics, which is actually making a comeback today. There's a lot of neo-Stoics today um, that are kind of like self-help people, but they're, they're really Stoics. Um, they were pantheists for the most part. In other words, they believed God was in everything. The divine is in everyone. And if you know, like the Star Wars uh, movies, the force, the idea of the force, you know, that's kind of more that's like the, the Stoics believe in that God was just everywhere. He's in everything. Um, Epicureans were actually materialists. So instead of God being everywhere, there, there was no God. There was no everything was just matter. It was just uh, atoms and electrons. And so we're, we're nothing but animals. Whereas with the Stoics, we're kind of like we're all divine. Uh, with the Epicureans, uh, it would be like we're just animals. We're nothing but highly evolved animals. But the thing that they had in common, although they're very different, they both deny the fact that we live in a world that's just saturated with God, the creator God. Um, even the Stoics who believed God was everywhere did not believe there was actually a personal creator that you could know, that you could be in a relationship with. They did not have that view, view at all. In fact, the number one rule of the academy, which is the main source of learning in that day. It was founded by Plato, the Academy. And the number one rule of the Academy was this. Um, you cannot know what is beyond this life, and so you just enjoy this one. Which is very much kind of the idea of, of American pragmatism today. We can't really know what's going on in the other world, so let's just concentrate on this world. And uh, any talk about a personal God to the Epicureans or the Stoics was a joke. It was laughable. And uh, so bringing up, you know, Jesus in a boardroom or a classroom or a staff meeting uh, would be kind of the same thing if you did that today. Be kind of laughed at. You'd be thought to be odd. That's what it was like for them, for Paul to be bringing up this personal God. And so in verse 18, they say, what does this babbler wish to say? And the phrase in Greek for babbler is literally a seed picker, like a little bird that's just going around and picking seeds. And the idea was that Paul has no coherent philosophy. He's just like grabbing little quotes and scraps of ideas from here and there. But they don't make sense. They're just a little jumble of thoughts. So it's, it's their way of mocking him. Um, they call him a babbler or a seed picker. Uh, like somebody who doesn't really know what they're talking about. Just all these confused ideas. But then at some point their, um, their mockery turns into uh, kind of a, there's a dark edge to it. It becomes a little bit threatening. And they say in verse 19, it says they brought him to the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill. That's what that means. It's the hill where the god Ares is worshipped. And that's where the philosophers would talk. So they brought him up to the Areopagus. And they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? And uh, they're not really curious to know because they want to change. They just want to have a little sport with him. Or maybe even put him on trial and prosecute him for talking about foreign divinities. Uh, so there's no real desire to know. At most, they want to just have a little fun um, just bantering with him and making him look silly. But there's no real desire to know. In fact, in verse 21, it says, the Athenians spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
And my dad taught at uh, Wake Forest for many years, and uh, at times he would say, that's kind of like what the, uh, the fellow professors and he would do. They, would, they just love to talk about new things just because they're new. Not because they really cared about what was really going on in the world or may, make a difference in the world. They, they just spent their time in talking about nothing except those things that are new, just kind of to you know, scratch and itch. Um, not really serious about changing. I once uh, heard on a, on a podcast uh, a book, and just by the title of the book, I bought it immediately. And uh, the book is called, Are You 100% Sure You Want to Be an Agnostic? Are You 100% Sure You Want to Be an Agnostic? And the idea, kind of making fun of agnosticism, is that, um, you know, it means that you don't, agnostic means you don't really know if there's uh, something beyond this world. You don't really know if there's a God. But the title of the book implies there's, there's two different types of agnostics. There's, there's one type that says, and this might be some of you, and I really respect this type. They say, um, I don't know if there's a God or not. This was me when I was 20. I was actually pretty sure there wasn't a God. But the agnostic would say, I don't know if there's a God or not, but I want to know. I want to be able to find that out because it matters. There's other agnostics that would say, um, I don't know. I don't think you can know, and I like it that way. And that's more, like, um, that's more like what I was like when I was a college student. Um, I loved a good debate. I loved talking to friends. I loved going to Speaker's Corner. Um, loved engaging friends uh, in political debate, uh, philosophical debate. But I actually had no interest in changing my life. And that might be you here today. You, know, you might say you like ideas, you like to read, you like to discuss and debate. But is there really an interest in changing because the, the Athenian philosophers loved to dispute and uh, all these new ideas, hearing things that are new, uh, but they didn't really want to give up control. And I didn't either. I, I wanted to make my own meaning, make my own decisions, define myself, and that felt great for a time, but the price is very high. The price of that is very high, and the price is that uh, I felt very alone, uh, very empty, uh, very lost, and kind of just withering like a plant that's dying with not enough uh, water. Because I lived in a God-forsaken world. I lived in a world that did not, was not saturated with the refreshing presence of the creator of the universe. That's, that's the world I lived in. And so that's the world that Paul is engaging uh, when he begins to speak to the Athenian philosophers. And that's what I'll look at next. Um, the good news that, uh, is that even though... Um, there's a lot of ignorance in our hearts, uh, a lot of lack of knowledge. Um, that's what ignorance means. We don't know. Paul says in verse 30, he overlooks all of the ignorance. Anything that you come to tonight with where you don't know, he overlooks all of that. He's willing to forgive all of that um, because now he's inviting you to repent. That's what Paul says. He's overlooked all the times of ignorance. You get, uh, you know, you're, you're free to go. It's okay. Um, all that's clean. Clean slate. But now, now that Paul's there, now that Christ has come, there's, there's this invitation to change your mind and, and go into this world that is saturated with God. That's the invitation tonight, is to, to change your mind. That's what repent means. It means to change your mind and look at things right side up instead of upside down and see that the world is filled with God. So verse 24, he says, God made the world and everything in it. 93 billion light years across, you know, 13 billion years old, and it's just a snap of his finger, and all matter and all energy came into existence immediately. God said, let there be light, and the whole 
thing happened. Big bang. And of course, he did that without, without my help. You know, as much as I want to feel useful and important, uh, God did that, and I was not there. I had nothing to do with that. Um, none of us were. The, the hum, humanity as a collective had nothing to do with that. Um, you know, we, we think we're very important, and we matter so much, and yet uh, God made this entire universe uh, without any of our helps, uh, without any help of anyone else. It was God alone, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Verse 25, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. And that's one of the, uh, the fallacies, I think, of a lot of religion, a lot of spirituality, is that we think that he needs us, that we're needed. Even, even a lot of Christians think this way, that, um, that he is served by human hands. You know, I often have this crazy idea that I am kind of like serving God all the time. He's lucky to have me in his service. And, um, and like I am doing him a favor if I donate a few hours of my day to him. That basically I, I own my own time. You know, I, I am the rightful possessor 24 hours of every day that I have. And I generously give him 30 minutes here to pray, maybe 30 minutes here to take care of someone else. C.S. Lewis says, nothing makes us angry like finding a tract of time that we thought was our own unexpectedly taken away from us. The unexpected visitor, the phone call, the baby's cry. Because we think that, you know, we, we own all this stuff. And we, we think that we're serving God uh, as if we're like Florence Nightingale, who's the founder of modern nursing. You know, we think we're Florence Nightingale when actually we're in the ICU with a tube in our mouth. And we're constantly, uh, you know, on life support from God. Uh, it says in verse 25, he, he himself gives to all humankind life and breath and everything. Every time my heart beats, that's a gift from God. Because the world's saturated with God. That's the only reason my heart is beating right now. And I've had two heart attacks, so I don't take that for granted. My heart is only beating because God wants my heart to beat. I know that well. And if you're living, we're all living in God's world, and he owns you. He made you. He knows you. He moves you. This is really encouraging for those of you who are leaving here. It says in verse 26, he has allotted the period and determined the exact boundaries of your dwelling place. And he does that so that you'll seek him and reach out to him. He uses the analogy of a little child reaching out to their mother's face. Like, you know, little babies will touch their mother's face. Um, That's why he allots the exact times and places we live. You know, some of you are going to different cities. We just prayed for you. Some of you are going to different schools, different jobs. You don't know uh, your, your, your roommate maybe right now. You don't know where you're going to be living. You don't know your apartment, your house. You don't know your address. You don't know what church you're going to go to. You don't know who your friends are. And I'm just telling you that Paul would say that all of those things are completely determined beforehand by God. And, and he is preparing a place for you there. And this, this has nothing to do actually with where you are on the faith spectrum. Your faith could be very weak or very strong or non-existent. You might be an agnostic. And yet, Paul says he is not far from any of us in verse 27. He's not far from any of us. In fact, Paul is so generous to these Athenians, these Epicureans and Stoics, that he quotes their own philosophers twice. As if to say, I respect, I respect your wisdom, I respect your knowledge. Um, Paul is incredibly respectful of them. Um, verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. That's by Epimenides. And Paul says, Epimenides got that right. We do live and move and have our being in him. Because God gives grace to all people. God gives wisdom to all people. Then he quotes Erastus. Verse 28. For indeed we are his offspring. From two Greek poems. And again, Paul is saying, you know God. 
you know, you, you might not know him well, but you know there's more. Um, you know that actually it is in him that we live and move and have our being. And we are his offspring. We are his children. We do not live in an unknowable universe. Uh, we do live in a, in a, in a universe that has purpose. In an epic story that is a better story than Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and Harry Potter. As much as I love those stories, this story is much better than those stories. And it has a beginning and a middle and an end. And the beginning, verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind. And the middle is verse 31, he raised Jesus from the dead. That's the center of the story. That's the, that's the turning point of the story. And then the end, verse 31, is that he and he alone, that Jesus alone, the man with scars, the man who is the lover of enemies, uh, the man of sorrows, the one that walked in our own shoes, suffered the way we suffered, that Jesus alone will judge, judge the world. Verse 31, he will, he will judge the world with perfect righteousness, with patient, measured, tempered justice. And it's not just like he's going to judge the world at the end of time. That even right now, he, that word drudge can also just mean setting things right. That not only at the end of time will he set everything right, he is right now setting everything right. He is putting things right side up. Flipping over yard carts. And he's doing that through our own words. Paul knew that he was doing that through his own words. Right there in Athens. Right there as Paul is telling those Athenian philosophers these things. He knows that God... By means of that, is bringing his own presence into the world. He's saturating the world with God. And so you have an incredible opportunity this week to go out and tell people the truth about the world they live in and who they are. And they live in a world that is filled with God. And that one day the entire earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But that is our destiny. There's no stopping that from happening. That one tribe, language, tongue, and people after another will be conquered by the love of God. By that which is peaceful and patient and kind and good and gentle. That will spread into every single country in the world. I uh, recently heard a story on a, in an interview on a podcast. It's actually a very side comment. It's uh, one of my favorite uh, podcasts, Theology in the Raw with Preston Sprinkle. And uh, he was talking about snorkeling in the Pacific. He went out snorkeling, looking for um, fish and sea creatures. I don't know what he was expecting to find, but he was out there bobbing around in the waves, uh, diving under every now and then, looking for just a little bit of sea life. And then all of a sudden, uh, he said, suddenly, six feet away, there was an eye of a humpback whale. It was like that big, just staring at him out of nowhere, just appeared out of nowhere. And, and he said um, that his guide later told him that that humpback whale, the fin of that whale alone is the strongest muscle of any animal that exists. And that it could, just by touching him, could have destroyed him immediately. And so there he is in the presence of this humpback whale suddenly, just floating there. And then all of a sudden it plummeted down to the depths. And he said that was the most ecstatic experience of his life. Because he was suddenly where he was not alone. There was this gigantic, powerful, dangerous, beautiful thing that was right there near him. And that's what Paul would say is true of you right now, that we are in this place where there is something greater than a whale that is right here, looking at us, staring us in the eyes. And we don't always see that, uh, but he always sees us. He always sees us. And sometimes, every now and then, uh, you'll get a glimpse. Um, you'll, there'll, there'll be one of these stories that'll happen where you'll suddenly see that eye and realize you're not alone, that this world is filled with his presence. 
I heard another interview this week um, by this very famous uh, fashion model of the 70s. I had never heard of her till this week, but she eventually um, married Oz Guinness, who's a pretty famous Christian um, apologist philosopher. Her name was Windsor Elliott. Okay, Windsor Elliott, uh, one of the most famous supermodels of the 70s. She had gotten to the peak of her career. She was in Paris on a you know, fashion show on the runway, going back and forth. Um, and she had gotten so popular and so well-known uh, that she was actually invited to a party after the event. And the party was at the house in Paris of Pablo Picasso, of all people. So she went into the home of Pablo Picasso, and she turned a corner, and there was the, the greatest artist in the world at that time. And, uh, and all these incredibly famous people, um, the most sophisticated, uh, beautiful people in the world, all there in that Paris home. And she said that um, she looked over and saw that he had a cheetah on a long gold chain. He had a pet cheetah in his house on a long gold chain. And something about looking at that cheetah, uh, she said that if that's what I'm living for, like if, if this is now the pinnacle of my life, and, and that is what it means to live, she said, quote, I fell into an abyss of absurdity and meaninglessness. Because she realized that's, there's, there's nothing there. That, like the God-forsaken world, there's no meaning to it at all. There, there's nothing lasting. That was, her, that was her world up to that point, was just living for that. And so that plunged her into two years of searching, fruitless searching. Uh, tried one religion after another. Spent a lot of time with a metaphysician in uh, New York City. And um, finally one day she broke down after two years of this, after the cheetah incident. And... She finally said, uh, if, if there is a God, I cannot find you. I've looked for two years and I cannot find you. So please find me. Please come and find me. And that night, uh, her mom happened to be visiting her in her luxury apartment in Manhattan. And her mom brought these two friends that just happened to be coming along. Uh, friends of her mom from out of town, from the West Coast. Uh, Windsor had never met them. And so her mom proudly um, shows her friends um, the portfolio of all of you know, Windsor's uh, greatest uh, glamour shots from the covers of the great magazines of the world. And they're leafing through the pages of this portfolio, and suddenly they gasp. And uh, they're like, oh my gosh. And, she, and Windsor goes, what? What is it? And they say, this, this photo, this magazine cover... And she's like, yeah, that's me. And then they say, um, six months ago, we were checking out of a grocery store in Seattle. And we saw this magazine cover. And God told us to pray for that person on that cover. And so we bought it, and we have it, and here it is. And, of course, immediately she just gave her life to Christ because the coincidence was too great. And the presence of this giant, beautiful being was too much for her and just overcame her. Over All of her fruitless searching could not get her there, but when God came and sought her and found her, um, she broke down and instantly changed her whole life. And at this table, we, we always uh, say that um, the presence of Christ is not symbolically here. It's not like we're just remembering. Sometimes we call this uh, a memorial... Um, 
we, we are not, um, this is not a memorial. This is actual, the presence of God that saturates the world is most uh, thickly here. This is, um, you know, this, there's, there's nowhere else in your whole week where you're going to experience the presence of God like this. That doesn't mean you're necessarily going to feel that. But there's a promise from Christ that he is here. This is, we take this very, very seriously, this meal. That he is really present. Um, it's almost like those nuclear hazard signs they have on, on the front of some buildings. Uh, that should be like right here because there's something really powerful and almost dangerous going on. The presence of this living God is here. Uh, and so we, we believe that every time we, we take this meal, um, we are once again experiencing uh, the fact that God is coming to this world and setting things right. Remember, we love these rascals.